2: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: The California Report. I'm Adi Bolaños in San Francisco.
3: Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just... part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.
1: The Washburn Fire in Yosemite National Park has grown to more than 2,700 acres and it's producing extreme heat causing huge plumes of smoke in the area. But at a community meeting Monday night, fire officials remained hopeful that they could protect a grove of giant sequoias. KVPR's Sarith Hawk reports. Operations Section Chief Matt Ahern says crews are holding a line around the Mariposa Grove, where the fire is burning on the outskirts.
4: It has backed a little ways into that, but it hasn't backed intensely into the grove. We have people going in there, cleaning around the bases of the trees, eliminating the residual heat and so forth.
1: One of the most well-known trees in the grove is the grizzly giant, estimated to be around 3,000 years old. Close to 700 people are assigned to the fire, says the park superintendent, Cicely Muldoon.
4: The only benefit of having this fire so early in the season is there aren't a lot of other fires going on, so there's a lot of resources available.
1: An evacuation order remains in effect in the nearby community of Wawona. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk in Fresno. In other fire-related news, you know those once-pricey drones that are now widely available? Well, they are causing headaches for firefighters. KCRW's Matt Gillum reports.
4: If just one drone enters an area where firefighters are using aircraft to battle a blaze, the whole aerial operation has to grind to a halt. That single drone can keep a jetliner loaded with retardant out of the sky for hours and allow flames to spread unchecked. A new partnership between L.A. County Fire and the FBI looks to deter drone flights that could hamper fire suppression efforts. Detection equipment allows authorities to set up a perimeter and be informed the moment a drone enters the area. Once the device enters the no-fly zone, officials know how high it is, how fast it's going, and where the operator is standing. Teams are on standby to immediately intercept the controller. When the team makes contact with the drone operator, they're informed that it's a federal felony to fly the device during a wildland fire. Officials say operators can be divided into three basic categories – clueless, careless, or criminal. L.A. County Fire and the FBI plan to expand the drone deterrence effort across the region. For the California Report, I'm Matt Gillum.
1: On the hottest days in California, there are around 8,000 more daily ER visits than on typical days. In L.A. County, it's more than 1,500. That's according to UCLA's new heat maps that show just how much hot days are harming our health. KCRW's Kaylee Wells has more.
2: It doesn't mean that more people are dying of heat. More likely, the heat is exacerbating someone's existing heart disease or asthma or diabetes and forcing them to go to the emergency room. Obviously, the hottest and most populated places are seeing the most ER visits. In L.A. County, that includes the Antelope Valley, the eastern San Fernando Valley, and parts of South L.A. But principal investigator David Eiselman says that's not the main problem there.
4: I think it has more to do with the baseline conditions in the community that are social and health and economic than it does to do with temperature. Because you'll see two communities right next to each other that are about the same temperature, but have vastly different effects. And that means a
2: bigger racial disparity, too. For example, the rate of ER visits on extreme heat days in Lamert Park, where the population is 80 percent black, is four times what it is in Rancho Park, which is primarily white. For The California Report, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles.
1: And now, an update to a story we told you about last week. The city of San Diego is starting the process of firing about 10 more employees who refuse COVID vaccinations and tests. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser has been following the story.
5: San Diego requires all employees to be vaccinated for COVID, but let about 1,000 employees skip the vaccine for religious reasons. Those employees then have to get tested weekly, but a small group refused that too. Records obtained by KPBS show the employees said testing violates their religious beliefs because the swabs are sterilized with a carcinogen. But medical and religious experts say those concerns are baseless. Now the city is starting the process of firing about 10 more employees, bringing the total to 52. That includes 20 police officers. The rest are from the Teamsters, Fire, and Municipal Employee Unions. This is the beginning of the process. The employees will still go through a negotiation with the city and their unions. For the California Report, I'm Claire Trageser in San Diego.
1: A new report finds Islamist, white nationalists, and other extremists on social media are bubbling with genocidal hate memes about Hindus. For regions with large Hindu communities like the San Francisco Bay Area, the real-world security concerns are substantial. As KQED's Rachel Myro reports from our Silicon Valley desk.
2: The report comes out of a new cyber-social threat center at Rutgers University, and this particular research effort was led by graduating senior Prasidha Sudhakar given that anti-Hindu disinformation is vastly understudied. Brecker's students worked in collaboration with the Network Contagion Research Institute to identify explosive growth in anti-Hindu slurs and slogans in the U.S. starting last fall. This was on social media platforms you'd expect to foster extremism like 4chan and Gab, but also mainstream platforms like Twitter, TikTok, and Telegram.
1: These very specific tropes are targeted write directly at Hindus,
2: depicted as these
1: like weird and dirty, disgusting people.
2: Sad to say there's a spike in hate speech whenever someone rises to prominence from a community that's historically been the target of prejudice. One recent example comes from San Francisco back in November. When Parag Agarwal was appointed as Twitter CEO,
1: immediately there were rises in anti-Hindu disinformation on social media spikes in certain ethnic slurs that were used specifically against him in particular.
2: But Sudakar and her colleagues discovered something surprising about the anti-Hindu hate speech surge on the climb since last fall. Much of it can be tied to Iranian state-sponsored trolls keen to exploit long-standing tensions between Muslims and Hindus, Pakistanis and Indians. And also, the Iranian campaign borrows heavily from a playbook used against Jews online.
6: The common thread here is the use and abuse of social media.
2: John Farmer directs the Miller Center for Community Protection and Resilience at Rutgers, part of the collaboration that produced the report. He says recent attacks demonstrate that real-world violence commonly follows hateful memes, hashtags, and such. He adds Hindu temples need to reach out to groups already working to protect themselves like Jews and Sikhs.
6: So that there's a clear chain of what happens. If something does come down, there's somebody detailed to respond to press inquiries There's somebody identified as their liaison to law enforcement. The threats can be mitigated, even if they can't be completely stopped. Um, But the communities have to be more willing, I think, than they have been in the past to actually reach out to other faith communities and other vulnerable populations to find out what they've been doing.
2: What about content management on social media? Why are they so flat-footed, so unfamiliar with Hindu phobia? Experts at Rutgers and beyond agree, tech platforms need to reach out directly to targeted communities of all kinds to become culturally competent and then expand what their machine learning software is looking for. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Miro in Menlo Park.
1: Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast. And I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Students at Mission Oak High School in Tulare are spearheading efforts to create a memorial at the Tulare County Fairgrounds. It's to honor thousands of Japanese-Americans who were forcibly held there during World War II. KVPR's Joshua Yeager has the story.
0: Senior Kimberly Tikshira had no idea that the Tulare County Fairgrounds served as one of the country's 10 assembly centers, the first stop for many Japanese-Americans who were sent to concentration camps.
6: It was really eye-opening. It was crazy. It put it more at home and made it more real. So before it was just a story and now it's more history.
0: It's a chapter of history that is often overlooked, says cultural history teacher Michael Paul Mendoza. These students are among a class that learned about this history all this year, for a good part of the school year, and were inspired to bring this history you know, back to the forefront you know, out of the shadows, so to speak, because it's not something that's taught widely uh, in American history. While Fresno and other fairgrounds that served as assembly centers have memorials that recognize their historical significance, Tulare's does not. Here's Mission Oak graduate Raven Borges. Kids, when they come here, I want them to know, you know, as, as little as it is to look at a monument, and, you know, of course, kids maybe not, won't understand it fully, but they can look and then they can ask their parents, oh, what was this? And it's just like a continuing learning experience for people. The class plans to work with survivors and their relatives to design a memorial that the 100,000 plus annual visitors to the fairgrounds will be able to see. Dina Rosardo, the fair's CEO since 2020, says until the students started their project, she didn't know much about the history of the grounds.
6: I'm not from here, so The kids educated me from being an out-of-town, but I also think there are people from here that don't realize the history, you know, just the history of it being an internment camp. That was a time when the United States didn't trust us because we were Japanese.
0: That's Alice Ishinaga-Nanamura.
6: We were on the West Coast. They thought maybe we were sending uh, messages to Japan. So that is why everybody on the West Coast had to leave. So uh, we were not very happy about that.
0: Ishinaga Nanamura's family ran a successful restaurant in Tulare before they were ordered to go to the Fresno Assembly Center in May 1942. She was just 11 years old at the time. She described the cramped and dirty conditions within the camps.
6: It was just barracks after barracks after barracks.
0: Twelve family members lived in just two rooms. They enlisted a neighbor to watch their car and home, but no one could bring them supplies or visit them inside the center.
6: That was a bad part because you couldn't buy anything. Uh, you had no money, you know. So that was a hard part for, for my parents. But they survived. They really survived.
0: From there, they were sent to a camp in Jerome, Arkansas. They returned to Tulare three years later in 1945.
5: I would like to welcome you to our very special program
0: today. Last week, Ishinaga Nanomura told her story on a panel at the Tulare History Museum. More than 150 people filled the museum to hear first-hand accounts of life in the Valley's assembly centers.
6: My dad, he came home and um, and told us to go ahead and get everything all settled, put things away, because we're going to have to leave.
0: Fair officials hope the memorial will be unveiled within the next two years.
1: Once again, that was Joshua Yeager from my former radio home base, KVPR. And finally, the largest nation traveling black rodeo is headed to Southern California after spending this past weekend in the Bay Area for its 38th year. KQED reporter Annalise Finney spoke with a cowboy who is participating for the first time. At the
3: Rowell Ranch in Castro Valley, hundreds of people sit on bleachers circled around the rodeo arena, watching cowboys and cowgirls ride bucking horses and lasso baby cows. Standing by his horse trailer is 32-year-old Corey Elliott, dressed in the uniform of the Buffalo Soldiers, including a Navy jacket with gold buttons. Elliott grew up in Richmond, but he learned how to ride horses from his uncle in the Pacific Northwest.
0: When we were children, like, I mean probably four or so, five. He had like a beautiful white horse. He used to keep horses in their backyard in Seattle.
3: His family is part of the Buffalo Soldiers of Seattle, a group that honors the legacy of the first black cavalry units in the U.S. military. His cousin, Jordan Newbill, is now the president. Newbill says in the Bay Area, black cowboy culture runs deep.
0: It's a lot bigger down here than it is in Seattle. Our group is pretty much the only black cowboys that you're going to find up in Seattle. Coming down here, personally for me, it's amazing because this is home away from home for me.
3: Now it's Elliot's turn to take part in the rodeo.
0: To be doing this first rodeo in the Bay Area and to be doing it with my family is something that I
6: couldn't buy.
3: The Bill Pickett Rodeo heads next weekend to Los Angeles. For the California Report, I'm Annalise Finney in Castro Valley.
1: And that's the California Report for Tuesday, July 12th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Bolanos. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
0: Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. Paint Care, now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org and Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
2: Hi there. I'm Randa abdel from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country, and everything in between. Support this work
1: today.
4: You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org/podcast. That's donate.kqed.org/podcast.